0: But it still probably took three months from start to finish. And during that time, you know, me and the other members of the senior team are focused on the deal, not focused on running the business. And the longer that goes on for, the more harm it's doing to the business.
1: Can we internationalize a business? Can we digitalize a business? And can we scale it?
2: Investors are very mindful. Of people just you know asking for money for an idea. I think it's easier if you've proven yourself two to three years, go the hard way, raise money, family, friends, banks, but show that you have something meaningful that you think you can grow.
3: Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, editor-in-chief of Coffee Business Magazine Fifth Wave. And today we're lifting the lid on the world of mergers, acquisitions, and investments. We're gonna explore three big questions. What does a great hospitality business look like from the perspective of an investor? In what circumstances should you merge your business with another? And what kind of investor you should be looking for and who to avoid? We'll be hearing from Niels Eriksson, former founding partner and managing director of the Hemera Group, and now a partner and CEO of Wave Investments. David Abramovich, founder and CEO of Grind. But to start off, we speak with Henry McGovern, co-founder of McGuinn Investments, a recent investor in Gales, the UK bakery chain. Henry is most known for founding Amrest, a central European restaurant conglomerate. Amrest grew franchise brands such as Starbucks, Pizza Hut, KFC, and many others across Europe, both East and West after the fall of the Berlin War. It went public in 2005, and by the time Henry left the company, it operated some 2,000 restaurants across 26 countries. Today, he is an investor in a number of hospitality businesses that have potential for massive scale. Let's hear from Henry about what he looks for when making an investment. Welcome, Henry.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
3: When you're deciding to invest in a a company, what traits do you look for in a hospitality business?
1: We look for, can we internationalize a business? Can we digitalize a business? And can we scale it? But this is a people business. I mean, the restaurant space is, it's just so interactive every day, right? I mean, it's one of these things that every single day, every single transaction, the customer needs to, to feel good and, and special. And so how do you build a culture around being able to execute and deliver that and people that are happy to be in the brand that they're in?
3: So just to summarize your acquisition criteria, can you internationalize? Can you digitalize? is it scalable? Does it have the right culture?
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: Okay. I'd like to take each of those one at a time. So the internationalizing component, what do you look for in a business that says, I can internationalize that?
1: The brand itself has to have a bit of stretch in it. And what I mean there is you have to be able to look at a business and say, gosh, how over time can we stretch this brand to appeal to a a bigger market audience. And usually if you think of a brand in a specific country and you say, okay, as you look out the next three, five years, as you build a a customer base, will you be able to stretch it beyond the very first customers that came in, which usually have a specific type, you know, it's, it appeals to a younger group or a female group, whatever it is, but do you see the brand is, is able to stretch? And if it can in a local market, it usually means it's got pretty good opportunity to go international and then international I mean, we're always amazed by it we've we've made so many mistakes on this front because you don't necessarily get it right you think it's going to come in it's oh it's just the flavor profile that needs to change you know the spaniards like less spice and and more salt or whatever the the individual country issue is but invariably you go in and you're like oh gosh we misread that it's actually this is the customer feedback so going in knowing that you need to be true to the brand itself but also be ready to to make changes
3: now the second thing you look for is can you digitalize this business tell me more about that
1: digitalization is the customer interaction enough that they want to download that they associate with your app that there is a, a frequency and a customer attachment to the brand that allows for the interaction that's necessary. Obviously, if the business is in delivery, that helps a lot because it gives a whole other venue, which the customer expects to be digitalized. The ordering system, the payment system you see today, payment systems are critical to engagement. I don't know if you've recently seen some of the new fintech payments that allow for immediate payment at table, et cetera. All of those pieces actually increase customer satisfaction. It's not something we expected five or seven years ago, that ease of interaction on the phone would make a difference in in terms of customer experience or ordering system in the restaurant or payment system. But today it's really critical and it allows for much more frictionless interaction with the customer. It allows for loyalty. It allows for engagement. So we look at a bunch of different touch points there to say, you know, how can we acquire customers? How can we retain them? How can we engage them? And does this brand lead itself to as many touch points on the digital side as possible?
3: Third point was scaling up. How do you know if a business is scalable?
1: that's That's a hard one because... It obviously starts at the people side first. We always had a rule that we should never grow more than 50% a year, which is already a lot. And that was because it's very difficult to build the people necessary to not run off the rails in your growth, right? You got to get the financial model right. The business has to be at least at a 20% IRR on its investments. You can then decide if you want to leverage it or not. Anything above 20% IRR really enables its financing and whether from internal cash flows or augmenting that with bank finance.
3: The final point is culture. What represents a great hospitality culture that you would invest in?
1: It's got to be positive. Positive energy is critical. People are getting up. They know they're going to face a long shift. of It's a, it's a tough industry. And so it's got to be cooperative. It's got to be engaged. When you work in a brand where you take pride in it. You know, you go out into the public. The fun thing about the restaurant industry is everybody has an opinion, good or bad. I meet you on the street and I say, hey, what do you think of Gale's? You're going to give me an opinion. Or, you know, what do you think of Starbucks? And you're going to say, oh, it's great. Or, oh, I much prefer the, the, you know, my local barista down on the corner. Everybody's got an opinion on this on this industry. So if you're in a brand that you, know, you feel good about when you go out and most of the people... Give you positive feedback about it. It's engaging, but the most critical piece in the restaurant industry is people work for whoever their restaurant manager is, right? I mean, the vast majority of people in the system, and so you've got to build that sense of pride and ownership at the restaurant level. Then you know it feeds from there. So we try to make sure that the managers at, at each location have enough authority, have enough. Responsibility and just attachment to the brand.
3: So, applying all that, you've just made an investment into Gales. What is it about Gales that excites you?
1: It has all the elements that you know I talked about. It is a business that can definitely be digitalized. It's a business that has proven its scalability, even during the hardest time. They kept opening new shops, and they have a unique production system. They have their central baking facility. They've been adamant about maintaining the quality of ingredients and making sure that they have the best product on the market. And every time they open, that local community gets a taste for something better than they've had in the neighborhood before. And that just drives commitment to the brand, that drives brand affiliation, it drives a flavor profile that people get used to, and they've stood out. So all the way around. I mean, just the leadership and the driving of the culture during a very difficult time. They've done that. They've stayed together. The turnover at the senior team has been very minimal uh, because everybody feels that what they're doing is is better. It's unique. So it touched all of our key points. Now, internationalizing a bakery business you know, is going to be tough. So if I look at the three pillars we discuss, that's going to be the hardest one because every nation has its own individual bread taste profiles. So I i think that's going to be a, a hard one for us. And you have to build a central production facility in, in the local markets so that you have you know, the quality and freshness there. But in terms of culture and, and scaling and digitalization, this brand just nails it on all three.
3: And what is the relative attractiveness of coffee chains compared to restaurant concepts.
1: Coffee is particular in that you really have to ensure your authenticity. I think customers quickly smell, taste, feel the difference in coffee and, and the authenticity of the environment. You know, are are the baristas really trained? It was one of the things we spoke to Gales about early on is where are they in their Training profile? Do they do origin trips? Do they have a real relationship with the growers so that they're protected long term on supply chain? You know, is it a genuine fair trade sourcing? Because those things really come out in coffee. It's just a very genuine sector if you want to succeed long term. It's one of these businesses where it becomes a local community. People feel and taste and smell the difference and you you can't really fool people very long so it's 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 really important in the coffee business that the training aspects and the supply aspects are genuine and really well thought through
3: incredible thanks henry for joining us here today
1: jeff it was a pleasure thank you
3: i love the framework provided by henry It's a model that every coffee retail operator can apply to make their own business more investable. Let's go over those four criteria again. Can you internationalise? Can you digitise? Can you scale up? And is your culture a positive one? Now, being acquired is one path forward for a business operator in the coffee sector. But let's not forget the opportunity for mergers. In what circumstances should you merge your company with another, or even a competitor? To explore this question, I'm here with Niels Eriksson, former founding partner of Hemera Group and now partner and CEO of Wave Investments. Niels joined Milchkönig, a German coffee equipment manufacturer in 1999, and subsequently merged it with Ditting and then Anthem. He let go of the management reins in 2013 and is now an active investor in other established coffee businesses. Welcome Niels.
2: Good to be here. Thank you for the invite. Tell me a
3: little bit about what you did after joining Mel Koenig in 1999.
2: In a manufacturing business, you need to have a product that is globally accepted with a strong brand. And that's kind of what we created with Mel Koenig. First and foremost, you have to have the right products for the right price for the right customers. And then you need to be acting globally, even if you're a small business, if that's where you see your market. The company I joined was an exclusively German business with hardly any exports. All the customers were German customers. So the first thing was to look at growing our export business. And for that, we needed to find great partners, distributors, agents that were willing to spread the message. But we also decided we have to set up our own subsidiaries, which we did in North America with Smart Clinic USA. We were the first coffee equipment company that I know of that set up 100% subsidiary in China. We started... Malkönig Asia, which is now Hemro Asia, 2003 in Shanghai. We went to Japan to start Malkönig Japan with the help of Melita Japan, a good partner of us in the business. And then we went on to India. So it's like we covered the globe through a network of agents and our own subsidiaries in order to spread the gospel. Then, of course, you constantly need to listen to your customers, which were not only baristas, but also retail owners, large roasters who had their own idea about how their coffee should be ground. And therefore, that, you need a powerful R&D and continue to develop products. And we pioneered Grind on Demand in espresso, which basically came from uh, me standing in Monte Carlo at my small booth with our one and only espresso grinder, the K60 Twin Grinder at the time. And looking at all of this hype around barista championships and the enthusiasm of baristas and specialty coffee coming around. And I said, well... We, we need a product for this. And that's how we designed the K30 and then the K30 Twin and the Peak and all the other products which followed the logic that for grinding the way forward, the technology we need to develop and market is grind on demand. And uh, if you're taking that risk, if you're successful, you need to have a factory that is coping with that volume. And for that, this is our third angle. We invested uh, substantially in Hamburg into Mark Koenig's capabilities and then fourth thing you always need to do as an investor and as a manager you look at your competition and you look at how you can work with the competitive environment we had lots of competitors and still do a lot of very good competitors mostly family-run businesses but our main competitor at the time was Ditting and we as owners Mr. Moore and I we we decided after a long period of uh, you know seeing whether we could work together and whether the companies could fit that we merged in 2007. And that was a, a real step, I think, forward for the company to grow and, and materialize all its potential.
4: That sounds fascinating that you struck up a friendly partnership with your main competitor. What was the, the true rationale? Was it to sort of combine technologies or just to grow market share?
2: It was a perfect fit for the products. And it's also a, a cultural fit. I mean, financial figures is one thing, but it for me, is only the result of whether there's a business purpose and a business mission for the companies. And if we are looking, we were competing both companies were competing in shop grinders, We were both market leaders in our respective markets, but shop grinders was a limited market whereby Mark Koenig was a pioneer in espresso grinders. And for Ditting to work on the same product line, it would cost them a lot of money and they didn't have the skill set. They didn't know the market that well. So that was a great fit. And when we put the companies together, the Distributors of Ditting and the sales team of Ditting could suddenly get access to espresso grinders that they didn't have before. And that was a great add-on, and they immediately create value for the joint enterprise because a sales team can, can sell more than one brand. And then the other thing is, Mark Kehny was not as strong, but also strong in inbuilt grinders like the OEM business that we have developed, whereby you touch a button in a super automatic machine around the world nowadays, and your chance is pretty high that there's going to be a product of Hemro inside that grinds the coffee, and this OEM business is more an engineering and manufacturing business, which was based strongly in Switzerland, and where we also put the competence center into Switzerland. And for espresso grinders, the competence center was in Hamburg. Wow! So it was a great fit, and any good business combination, whether by merger or by acquisition. You need to have a a purpose. You need to see that the teams fit. You don't want to lose people along the way simply because you as owners misjudged what it takes to run this company combined. And I think we did that very well. I mean, fortunately, Germany and Switzerland, we don't have a language uh, barrier, but you have to be mindful of the cultural differences of the heritage where the companies are coming from. And then you have to put it together piece by piece. One important thing to add on, because this is it's all about acquisitions and investments in coffee, but it's comparable to other industry. I bought into a great management team in Switzerland, which was there. And I, I brought in a, a very talented team from Hamburg and we added on skills that we needed. But I think overall, we overnight created a very international, very focused, uh, very skilled management team, which we didn't have individually before. Because this is now also always a question, where do I get the right talent for my business? And how do I make sure once I get them, how do I keep them? And then we added on Unfim later on in 2012, similar story, because the owner of Unfim, Mario Monfrini, didn't have a successor. He was looking for a partner to take the business forward, keep the brand, keep the factory, and kind of let him exit. And that was a great partnership. And with that, we added the Italian espresso culture, heritage, and some great markets where we weren't present before as Ditting and Mark Kearney. That was a very additive.
4: So now getting down to the nuts and bolts of that investment, you've identified a business that has something special. What's the process you go through to make ultimately an investment?
2: It's very important for us as investors is what are the people we're getting involved with? Because at the end of the day, it's a level of. Trust and commitment and also fun that you want to experience when you invest into somebody else's business because we don't have any intention to run the business. So we need to like to work with the people and not only the owner or managing director, but also the, the team around it. So the culture is important that we think we fit to that culture. We can grow that team and we trust the management to to basically take this forward. Then, of course, the business rationale is clear to us how they want to grow, do they have the right strategies, can we help them maybe get refocused? Is there something where we can add value? That's number two, you have to align on a business plan. And number three is, of course, you have to align on the financials because without a clear cut financial plan, which then goes down to the nitty gritties of your cash flow and your banking and all of this, you will not align as an investor because that's where you have always been asked for is at the end of the day is for your money. And lastly, you have to discuss what happens when we, because we're usually partners on time, when we uh, want to or have to exit. I mean, these are all the things that you need to discuss in advance. And if that's said and done, you know, our philosophy has always been when that's a game plan, we follow that game plan.
4: And so what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur setting up a business today to prepare themselves to be invested in?
2: Yeah, especially nowadays, the last, you know, I'd say, I would say, 12 to 24 months, new business have sprung up because there's so many new markets coming up in coffee. There's a lot of sustainable companies suddenly offering consulting, advice, certification, you name it, marketplaces springing up. And many times when we get it, it's a good idea, but we don't really see the business plan materializing outside the idea that could be an issue with manufacturing network Skill set of the person that promotes the business plan. Because if somebody's new to the industry, it's very hard to convince people from the industry that what you're proposing will be ultimately successful. So, number one advice is if you want to go into a business, make sure you inform yourself well enough what you're getting into. Maybe get some references and get some support, some people that will help you grow the business, be it on the board or be it elsewhere, so that you're not alone promoting this. Because investors are very mindful of people just. You know, asking for money for an idea. I think it's easier if you've proven yourself two to three years, go the hard way, raise money, family, friends, banks, but show that you have something meaningful that you think you can grow and, and convince people that you have the right tools. Because ultimately, at least we are investing in people and whether we believe that they can do what they say. And then ultimately, you need a good financial set up you need a good reporting package if you want to grow the business you need a cfo or some kind of controller because you want to focus on the business you need somebody that controls the numbers
4: thank you very much Niels, for joining us today on fifth wave
2: it's great to talk to
5: you
3: so just recapping what Niels said if he's looking to merge a business he's essentially looking for two things one each company must have a strong presence in a complementary market segment so that it can add value quickly. And two, a strong team fit where great managers have room to grow in the new, bigger business structure. Finally, we're speaking with David Abramovich, founder and CEO of London-based Grind. We devoted an entire episode to David's remarkable story back in December, 2020. But to quickly recap, David began Grind in 2011 when he took over his father's mobile phone shop on the Old Street roundabout. He took external investment for his subsequent cafes, raising seven million pounds through three crowdfunds. Just before COVID lockdown hit, Grind operated over 10 stores across central London, offering coffee, cocktails, and all day food. But COVID proved to have a silver lining, a major opportunity in the at-home coffee market. David has since raised an additional 22 million pounds to expand Grind's at-home coffee offering. So let's dive into the mind of this experienced entrepreneur, to understand his thought process when raising money from investors. Welcome, David.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: So until COVID, Grind was essentially a hospitality business with a small at-home offering. But you've just received a game-changing investment for your at-home coffee offering. Bring us up to speed.
0: We actually started laying the foundations for that change of direction in about 2019, when we, started investing in our direct-to-consumer products and the idea behind those was it was all about bringing grind coffee into people's homes and we felt that the best way to do that was in a way which was as simple and as easy as possible and that kind of led us to the nespresso pod which is amazing in terms of being ridiculously easy to use and almost impossible to mess up but obviously nespresso pods have their environmental and quality challenges so we started developing compostable Nespresso pods with super high quality organic coffee inside. And really, we were just tinkering around with that back in kind of 2018, 2019. And then we slowly started to scale it up and we built a big new roastery and we invested in a commerce platform and customer service and outsource fulfillment and all those kind of things. So some pretty significant investment ended up going into that arm in 2019. And then Obviously, COVID, the timing of that was disastrous for the high street where we had to close all of our locations, which are exclusively in central London, but amazing for the at-home business just because it forced lots of people to start looking for great quality coffee online. And luckily, we had a product there and ready to go. So although sales were starting to ramp up ahead of COVID, they really exploded during that kind of six to nine-month period and, and have continued to grow since then.
3: So tell us about this latest investment.
0: Sure. We've just closed 22 million pound round, which is obviously very significant for a business of our size. And it's kind of all of the prior investment rounds put together times two. And the investment's been led by a guy called Richard Koch, who's a management consultant, and entrepreneur, and investor. He's also an author and he's written lots of books on business and the the eighty twenty principle. And essentially, you know, his philosophy is all about investing early into businesses that could become star businesses and who could dominate in their category. And that's absolutely what our intention is now, to you know, to become the dominant force in compostable coffee pods. So we'll be using this money to scale up the team significantly, scale up the digital and marketing team, and then start lots of marketing activity so we can reach more customers and using it to internationalize as well. Now, I'd like to get
3: into the head of the founder entrepreneur here. Did you always know you needed this money or prior to this deal, were you saying, right, I need to find a certain amount of funds and therefore we're going to go out? Or do you kind of look at the investment opportunity and then decide with that partner, okay, then this is how much money we need?
0: It was interesting because, you know, we didn't necessarily need to raise money if we wanted to carry on as we were. You know, luckily, we weathered the COVID storm pretty well, thanks to the online business, which effectively bailed out the physical business, which obviously suffered huge losses whilst being closed. So we weren't in a position where we needed to raise money to stay alive. You know, I've been there before in the past, but fortunately, we weren't in that position now. But it's also very obvious that if you want to build a you know, multi-hundred million pound business, then there are certain things that you need to invest in. So it was definitely the ambition was to do a significant investment round, but it needed to be on the right terms and with the right partner. And there were, there were lots of things that we just simply weren't willing to accept in that negotiation. And, and that therefore naturally ruled out some classes of investment partner, if you like. I wasn't super keen on taking in a partner who had a fixed three or five year horizon to then realize their investment, because I still think we're relatively early stage and you know I'm happy to keep building this business for for the next 20 years if that's the way to deliver maximum value for our shareholders.
3: Long-term horizon, that seems to be clearly part of your selection criteria for an investment partner. What were the key considerations in terms of selecting this partner no doubt you had other choices
0: i think you'll often find that these kind of deals can be quite complex in structure so they might involve debt going into the business that kind of the debt like equity so it's actually debt but it has the effect of equity which means that effectively the person investing doesn't really pay for their shares they they lend the business money and they receive ownership in the business and that money gets paid back that wasn't something that was attractive To me, and it's not, we've always tried to keep our structure very simple. You know, people have put cash in and they've received shares in in return for that. And the bigger you get and the bigger these deals get, you kind of get lots of preferences on the shareholding and people who get their money back first in certain situations and lots of other instruments that clever investment companies like to invent and and work with. And that just wasn't something that was particularly attractive to me. So we really just wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And to have someone, you know, effectively swap cash for equity and to keep the deal itself as simple as possible. And just so that we could get on with it, because fundraising is a huge distraction for the business you know this was a very quick process relatively but it still probably took three months from start to finish and during that time you know me and the other members of the senior team are focused on the deal not focused on running the business and the longer that goes on for the more harm it's doing to the business so for me the main criteria is really were someone who wanted to do a relatively quick, relatively simple deal and had a long-term horizon and was happy to follow on as well. I think that's really important. You know, I think having someone who's got the means to do the same amount of money again, if the conditions are right, and that's what everyone wants to do quite quickly, it's obviously very attractive because that stops you having to do a whole nother process in two or three years time when you're ready to raise and grow again.
3: That's been fabulous to have you here today, David.
0: No problem at all. Thank you for having me.
3: So for an experienced operator like David, who has now raised significant capital to dominate the compostable coffee capsule market, his advice is clear. Raising money is laborious and distracting for senior management. So keep it short and simple. Avoid the investors who only want quick profits. And find partners who have a long term vision and deep enough pockets to fund your business a second time round when the timing is right. And that's all this week for the Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate a good rating if you enjoyed this show. Subscribe to us on Instagram at Fifth Wave Coffee, that's the number five, followed by TH Wave Coffee. And tell us what topics are important to you so we can make the show more relevant to you and to your business. This episode was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Geoffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. This week, in association with the Coffee Music Project, we leave you with a wonderful track, Our Time, by 1403. Have a great week, and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated.